Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt, and welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I, for one, have been quite busy, but nonetheless, fall has progressed quite wonderfully here, and I'm looking out right now at a silver maple that just this week went from almost totally green to a beautiful blaze of bright yellows, oranges, and reds. It's glorious. All right, what do I have for you this week? Today's conversation is a little bit of a departure from what we've been doing lately. I'm very excited for my guest. Joining us today is Sarah Bergman. Now, that name might ring a bell, but if you haven't heard of her before, Sarah Bergman is the creator of the Pollinator Pathway Project. And essentially, the Pollinator Pathway was built as a proposal for global ecological design. Now, I know some of you might be cringing at the word ecological design, but think about it. Humans are the dominant form of landscape disturbance on this planet. You really can't go anywhere without seeing the effects of modern man, really. And so Sarah's whole pollinator pathway is really boils down to a design project, uh, but it's design and culture intertwined. And it's built as a way of what she calls ecological judo, which I like. And it's kind of a philosophical approach to combating sprawl. You know, sprawl is gobbling up habitat at an ever-increasing rate. Urban centers are going to expand, and it's a way of planting and integrating ecology within the human environment, and in the long run, it's to benefit native pollinators. Now, if you've heard about Sarah and the pollinator pathway before, it's probably been billed as this way of saving the honeybee. But as you'll pick up from our conversation, it's never been about the invasive European honeybee. It's about benefiting native pollinators and making the human environment a little more ecologically sound, instead of the sterile concrete jungle you see every time you walk into a city. This was a fun conversation. Sarah's one of those deep thinkers that I really like having conversations with. She's a great human being, and it's something you're really going to enjoy. But before we get to that, I've got a few orders of business to take care of. First and foremost, youtube.com slash plants. Please go check out our videos. We're having a lot of fun making them. We have a lot of shorter ones and even a longer style video featuring some of the botany of Southern Appalachia. It's a lot of fun to make them. We've teamed up with a lot of great musicians who have been very kind in offering their music to our productions, and uh, I think it's a really great way of enjoying plants on the internet. Also, if you're enjoying this podcast and you'd like to support it, please head on over to patreon.com slash plants and see what we got going on over there. For a little bit of money each month, you can get yourself kickbacks like stickers, access to the VIP section of the indefensiveplants.com website, and for those of you looking to get a little bit more, you can even get yourself a producer credit on this show. Kind of fancy, eh? For instance, today's episode is produced in part by Bendix, Erene, Holly, Clifton, Shane, Caitlin, Rosanna, Mary Jane, Manuel, Jennifer, Sarah, Sienna and Garth, Troy, Margie, and Laura. So thank you to everyone who has supported us thus far. It means the world to me, and it's helping so much. Podcasting gets a little expensive from month to month, so every little bit helps. If multiple donations every month are not your thing, you can give a one-time donation of any amount. Just head on over to indefensiveplants.com, scroll down on the right-hand side of the page, and click that donate button. Every little bit, and I mean this, goes towards podcasting. It helps a ton. If money isn't your thing at all, which I completely understand, at the very least consider subscribing to and reviewing this podcast on whatever pod portal you use to download it. Reviews not only help me make a better podcast for you, but they help In Defense of Plants reach a wider audience. And my goal here with In Defense of Plants, as I've said it before, is to cure plant blindness one episode at a time, one article at a time, one video at a time. Not enough people realize the importance of plants as organisms. I'm not talking about medicine or anything like that. 
I'm talking about plants as living, breathing, fighting organisms. They're alive, they're evolving, and they deserve our attention. And I think a plant-based perspective on conservation would do good for the rest of the biosphere. So your reviews help In Defense of Plants do that one step at a time. Because reviews are how all the podcatchers make recommendations to new listeners. So if you've ever gotten onto iTunes or Stitcher and seen, hey, you might like this, that's because someone reviewed it and they like similar podcasts to you and they think that you would enjoy this podcast as well. So every review helps in that mission. All right, entirely enough rambling from me. Let's head on over to my conversation with Sarah. I hope you enjoy. All right. Well, Sarah Bergman, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor, may I say, to have you here. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. So I'm the founder of a project called The Pollinator Pathway, and it's basically a proposal for global ecological design. And it's a few different things within that. It's first and foremost about connecting uh, fragmented landscapes around the world. And that's not a new idea. There's a lot of people who share in that vision. And the second aspect of this project is about sort of designing against inertia and momentum. Um, and this is looking at sort of big scale systems. And the first uh, way that I mean that is through cities and cities sort of by their nature, they want to sprawl. And so what this project's asking us to do is to design against sprawl. And so it's, it's looking at, you know, connecting landscape while not contributing to sprawl. So really designing in collaboration with density. And it can do that in a few different ways. The first is a really great, if not very sexy sounding, um, uh, real estate mechanism called transfer of development. And what that basically means is that you can set landscape out of development um, outside of cities. So you take it out of development and you can exchange the rights to develop into the city. So a building can be made to go higher in exchange for the land being set aside outside the city. I find this a really great mechanism because it basically turns the city into an ecosystem. So instead of just adding some green stuff and basically decorating sprawl, you're really helping to find a way to sort of change the design itself. And the the second uh, sort of way to get there, and it's maybe a little more problematic, but it's still a decent way to get there, is um, through connecting fragmented landscapes while not contributing to sprawl. So it's kind of ecological judo. You're basically <laughs> going in and you're connecting landscape but you're, you know, figuring out areas to contribute to connectivity while not using space where a building would go. So basically, when you're working inside of a city at all, then you're paying a lot of attention to the edges of the city so that you know that everything you put inside of a city is going to be contributing to it expanding, right? So you really want to sort of pay attention to that. The third aspect of this project is how this relates to farming. Um, a farm is a system where, you know, all the biodiversity has been removed by design and uh, that means it's a landscape that blooms all at once and then dies all at once. And it also means a uh, landscape with no biodiversity. So therefore, there's not going to be very many of the plants counterparts in pollinators in those landscapes. And how we've gotten around that is by inserting an outside pollinator to produce, you know, enough uh, pollination for our food supply. And the, the species that we sort of selected for that is is mostly honeybees. And that's how we came to be using honeybees at the scale that we do. The, the point with this project is that these are pretty vulnerable landscapes. And it's, it's already clear because we've brought in a pollinator. <laughs> yeah. 
And we could see what happens really quickly when things start to go wrong there. Yeah, and and as we've seen in the last decade with the honeybees not doing well, you know, that that was very much the case, right? And the public has been hearing no end of, you know, the honeybee not doing well. And so the, the response was in many ways, people sort of became beekeepers and they wanted to um, help the situation by adding more honeybees um, elsewhere. And this is a lot like adding more cows to a grass problem, <laughs> right? Like this isn't, um, doesn't really help. And what does help is, is biodiversity. And so the, the point of this project is to design a counter landscape that helps to offset the lack of biodiversity in farms and also then, you know, sort of um, begins to make a more comprehensive design across cities and farms and, and what we, you know, call our wild spaces. And the focus then of, you know, this counter design is on native pollinators. And so these are the, the other bees, you know, the 20,000 or so other species of native bees and the, uh, the bats and butterflies and moths and midges, et cetera, that, you know, essentially pollinate at least 80%, if yeah. not more, yeah. of the planet, as you well know. So the, the focus of this project is on those species. And, but the idea then is to create a sort of counter system of biodiversity that connects fragments and it supports biodiversity. It's very straightforward. And supporting biodiversity means supporting native pollinators. They're essentially the sex life of plants. And, this all has to do with climate change. As you well know, the phenological timing of the world is changing and it means that everything is moving. And when I first started reading about this in, you know, 2006 or so, I sort of made this assumption that all species would be sort of moving north, right? And of course, they're not really doing that. They're moving really quite unpredictably. But the point here is that they're, they're reaching the edges of fragments and they're going to run out of room. And so part of the logic here on landscape connectivity is to sort of support and enable their design. And I'm taking the opposite tack here on the idea that, you know, climate change is impacting these different species, but it's also the reverse. Like they're essentially designing ecosystems. And so supporting and enabling their design is enabling resilience. Right. And that leads to the idea that, that all species design the planet. Like a bird is going into a forest, it's distributing seeds, and it is basically designing the future location of forests. So if the bird's not there, then that's that. Right. So this is really about, you know, trying to support the interaction between these different species. And the, the last aspect of this project um, really has to do with us. And it's the idea that we are now a major ecosystem. We're in a new epoch, the Anthropocene and we're moving away from a nice, warm, fuzzy climate of the Holocene. And it's the idea that, that nature, culture, and ecology are deeply entwined. And you can see, sort of see that quite obviously when you think about the move from hunter-gatherer to farmer and how that was a cultural transformation. But it's also a pretty profound ecological transformation um, in terms of the planet, right? It shifted whole ecologies. And the the sort of narrative was looking at some of the Western perspectives on the natural world and how they have in many ways come to define and design the Anthropocene. So the kind of perspectives that the old naturalists and explorers and philosophers gave us of a world where nature was a pristine sort of over there, uh, separate from human design, is in many ways what allowed us to kind of suspend our belief that we were in fact hmm. designing the planet. And in more recent years, there's a you know group of thinkers called the Green Modernists who who pointed out that there really isn't a sort of pristine nature that we can return to, right? There's no sort of known baseline. And this was really interesting to me. One of the the sort of drawbacks of those ideas as they meet reality 
and sort of meet capitalism is, for example, that you could decide that you really prefer lawn grass to a forest. And because you're a person and, you know, you know, because you value it and you find it sort of culturally valuable and you don't find the forest valuable, that you might be able to sort of make a case for a human centric landscape that understands only what it values. Right. Right. And the case that my project was trying to make is that, yeah, there's, there's not a pristine baseline to return to, but there is good design and there's thinking more deeply about making lasting systems and to make a lasting system really means supporting, you know, not just our civilization, but the planet. And to get there means really designing on long time and also designing more broadly across systems. Now, that's that's a lot, and it's a really big idea, but I love so much about it. And I think one of the most exciting parts is, as you mentioned, is this idea of value and how you could say you value a lawn more than a forest, ergo you have a lawn. And that's placing human value and, and our should or should not system in place of science. And, and, and what you get with that is science can't tell you what you should or should not do, so then you have the lawn. But when you place kind of ecology and a holistic view of all of these units as part of a larger system that supports us in the long run, suddenly you have something guiding these value judgments that's more than just, well, I like it. Yeah, right. And I have a knee-jerk problem with putting humans at the center. I really do. This you this idea that, that humans are at the center, it, well, if, if humans are at the center of a big enough design, <laughs> then maybe we can do it, you know, mm-hmm. um, which touches on one of the things that inspired this project sort of a couple of years in, which um, is called Planetary Boundaries. It's a, a sort of Earth Systems Framework where it's a group of scientists that outline nine boundaries that we can't cross for a safe operating space for humanity. And I love that sentence. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> um, but the, you know, it's of course a human centric design, but it's big enough. I mean, you're talking about biodiversity as one of those nine points, right? Yeah. If you, if you're going to put humans at the center, then, then it needs to be scaled at a scale that supports the entire planet or it's a pretty crap design. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. And I like that safe operating space because it's kind of like there was nothing to say I couldn't go in the basement as a kid other than the fact that my parents wanted me to have a safe play space, not a space full of <laughs> chemicals and uh, you know hard heart workshop tools and stuff. It's, it's that right. kind of mentality is that so much of this is rooted in the fact that we want to live too. You know, we don't want our system to become unraveled in only a decade or two when we can no longer grow the amount of food or have the coastal communities or the fisheries that once supported us. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. It, it really, it, 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 again, it's, you're not taking humans out of it. You're just not putting them at the direct center of the reason for everything. Yeah. Or, or again, like if you are, then scale up, yeah. you know, scale so large that it's, um, it's actually imperceptible whether or not you're the host or the client. What always bothers me is when I talk about issues, especially the one that always comes up all the time with this is uh, the idea of controlling deer populations, especially in the Northeast where I'm from. They are, huh. because of our designed management system, way out of check, and it's destroying the flora of that region. It's mm. just mowing it all to the ground and, and turning it into deer poop. And when you start to talk about <laughs> implementing deer control to you know another design system to fix the design we've already created, 
you know, people say, well, you know, hum- if humans weren't here in the first place, and you're going, well, dear, they, they are here. So yeah. which one do you think is more practical to be talking about in terms of making things better for the foreseeable future? Can we right. get rid of humans? <laughs> no, that's pretty unethical by our standards, but we yes, can do something right. about the deer a little bit easier. And that's where I think you just, it's too easy to shut the conversation down when that's really, we're not in a position right now where we can just have these binary decisions on how to move forward with our future, other than we need to start accepting ecology as the the system that governs literally all life on this planet. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, yeah, I can't even (laughs) add anything to that. It's just basic, you know? It's so perfect. It's true. Yeah. But um, I mean, that's that speaks so much to your idea that you can really kind of take all of these aspects and not exclude humans. You're not this, this you know, lefty greenie as, the, you know, opposition. Hate all humanity. Yeah, hate all humanity. Yes. It, it, it says we're here too. We're part of this, but we can be better at being part of it. Yeah. And, and that um, in many ways that we're not equipped to, like our culture hasn't been very well equipped to think about the scale of our design or even the, I guess, the complexity of the problems in a certain way. Like, I mean, the, the save the species, I think, phenomena is part of that. And maybe I'll just say something here about that. The, I mean, the point of this project is not to save anything, um, first <laughs> off, but it's, it's also, it's about asking us to, to, to get beyond that narrative, um, to design for complexity itself. But rather than focusing on a particular species or, or like a charismatic megafauna, et cetera, the idea is to design for complexity itself. And I think that's a really, really important aspect of this project. It's, it's in many ways asking how much complexity can we possibly run across our systems and where we can't, we shouldn't, you know, we, I think should be designing systems knowing we don't have very much time to do so and that we don't have very much in the the way of real support and funding, especially in America. And <laughs> to to be really thoughtful and judicious about what we design where, I think is really smart, especially for this particular project, which generated a lot of enthusiasm across the board, which is really phenomenal. It's so cool. And my hope would be that people organize to, to make one as opposed to 50. Uh, <laughs> I mean, if they want to make 50, that's great. But if we could do you know, a set number of these kinds of projects really well and really contribute our community forces to that and, and direct our funding to it, that would um, have a greater chance of success. And I unfortunately don't feel that way about a lot of community level projects, which they just need real government support. So here's the deal is that, you know, when I started this project, people fell in love and the project got so much attention. And the strange result of that was actually not that people wanted to help support the existing project. They wanted their own. And that's pretty cool. But I was in no way equipped to help them. I mean, I'm a single person trying to make this, you know, at the time, a a design project in the heart of my city. The beauty of everyone wanting to make one is how cool is that? You know, like, yeah, yeah. um, the the downside is that I, I actually went and tried to help a number of different organizations and community groups and every one of them hasn't, has not succeeded. And so the time commitment is, is pretty large. And if we want to sort of, you know, take the excitement for this kind of idea and really make it work, then it needs a particular kind of collaboration. And this relates to design and design thinking too. It's about crossing disciplines and, asking the Department of Transportation to collaborate with, you know, 
the postal service if they happen to be located near <laughs> incidentally <laughs> the postal service is near one of my projects so we you know for example have a utility company with the postal service you know with a number of landowners and you need that kind of collaboration to make a project like this succeed you also really need ecologists and designers to be working together um, especially in areas where you might want to think about how things look um, and inside of cities, you know, we're encouraging people to think about actual aesthetics because if you make something really beautiful, then people will be more interested in it. But the gist is that asking people to to really come together around this and, and build something that potentially could last for hundreds of years is far more useful, even if you only get a, a tiny portion of the way to that completion than it would be to add some plants to, you know, your <laughs> section of something and, and then walk away in two years, you know, yeah, which is kind of what's happened. And that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Uh, you know, when it comes down to it, it's a, it, it's a very simplistic but beautifully elegant way of, uh, you know, hitting all of those major aspects. So, you know, from a, a contextualized standpoint, from like a physical standpoint, what is this project? I mean, we understand where it's couched or at least nestled in uh, thought quite wise, literally. But what is, how does it you manifest mean? itself uh, in, in your eyes? What is this? Yeah, thing quite literally. About, yeah, Bergman? quite literally. What is well, the manifestation? I mean, as, of this as I described, these are yeah. landscape projects, and so they're they're quite specifically about connecting landscape. And um, ten years ago, when I first started building this project, I. I wanted a place to to spend a lot of time thinking about these big system ideas, and I will say I'm I'm actually not trying to be a nonprofit that makes these things forever. Um, I made this to think about big ideas. So to answer your question, though, yeah. the project that I started ten years ago was okay. a public design project that I built in the heart of a city, and it it fit all those requirements that I'm talking about. Like it was you know high level of native plants, which we didn't talk about. We'll talk about next. This first project was a, a public design project that I built in the heart of Seattle. And it fit the requirements that I'm talking about in terms of connectivity and fitting in with density. And I have partnered with other organizations to build um, other projects that sort of fit these requirements as well. So, you know, for example, I'm, you know, working with a transmission corridor with an um, electric, electricity company, et cetera. But really, the reason I made this project was to set forward some simple ideas. And, you know, many of these ideas are not new. I'm, I'm more synthesizing information than anything. And the hope here is, is simply to make tools so that other people yeah. can build them around the world. Um, if that answers your question. No, yeah, I like that a lot, actually, like a toolkit, because to think that you sitting in Seattle could make a one-size-fits-all for the world is is outlandish, you know what I mean? No one's expecting that out of you, nor should anyone expect that out of You'd anyone else. But this idea that there's ideas, <laughs> there's ideas and concept, well... <laughs> hypothetically speaking, no re reasonable person. Um, but there's, it's, it's really a tool set. Like you said, it's the set of ideas and concepts that are worth following, uh, you know, each with its own kind of nuance, wherever you're at, but to, to then address those yeah. big issues, which really are some of the largest issues facing our species. So, um, you know, you mentioned, for instance, native plants, and that's, you know, I'm in defense of plants. I tout the use of native plants more than anything, especially uh, as gardening, but that's so much of what this project entails, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when I started, I set a, a minimum, a spatial minimum of 80%, and we've tried to achieve that ever since in this urban context, right? And so the kinds of questions that I was asking when I started was, what can I what can I do? Like, what's the highest possible I can do within this framework, right? And, you know, in the case of this particular project, which had all kinds of, you know, interesting challenges, um, we could achieve 50 in some and 100% in others. And 
you know, you know that, you know, you have a goal and you just keep trying to achieve it. And that is extremely important. Right. Um, so just to backtrack on that, yes, this is fully focused on native species. And, um, well, actually there's a couple of things I want to backtrack on. What I set out to do was to build this public design project (laughs) and also to make a book and also create, you know, eventually over time, create a tool set. And, I want to reference this book really quick, not because I'm trying to pitch a book, but because it's really important to the project and it's important to that idea that I was just talking about with Western thought. And what I was trying to do was respond to that and say, you know, yes, there there isn't really a pristine nature yeah, like that, yeah. that narrative that we built of a kind of, you know, sort of precious and perpetual over there, right, of nature isn't, isn't really serving us very well. Um, but what there remains in that yeah, is yeah. Good, good or bad design. And that then, you know, makes sense of this idea of design, right? Like it's it's how we organize the relationships that becomes incredibly important, which is why this project was really about trying to span multiple systems. And in the end of the day, you know, actually trying to work actively across silos in, in different, you know, uh, fields. And the the book that I'm making is a two foot by three foot book. It's uh, enormous yeah. and it's a naturalist book. <laughs> And so, you know, for me personally, like a huge uh, part of the reason why I did this project was to have a a space to think about these big scale systems. And there's a, you know, a long tradition of that sort of thing. You have your Thoreau going off to Walden. You have um, Wendell Berry, you know, who spent a lifetime on a farm uh, writing about farming. And this project was built to, to sort of have a conversation about the fact that we now are this major ecosystem, right? And so to ask these big questions about where we're heading and how we how we could think about these big scale design problems. I just went off on a on a total tangent there. No, actually and I really appreciate that tangent because yeah. suddenly it removes a lot of that subjectivity and kind of puts it into this uh, a framework that's doable and again alleviates these issues of like well I value yeah. Norway maples over sugar maples therefore I want Norway maples. It's saying no, let's think of this ecologically and and I'm glad you know, and, and just saying this is one thing, but you you're. It sounds like you're adding a physical entity, this book, uh, to kind of drive that point home in a way that might be a little bit more approachable than, say, the restoration ecology peer-reviewed literature. Yeah. Yes. The the restoration ecology literature is is very welcomed here, but yeah, maybe not for everyone. Um, <laughs> and and yeah, I mean, this project's built on on you know, really joy and imagination to be to be blunt. Um, and it's it's. <clears throat> Its audience has been really remarkable in the sense that it has really ignited people in the built environment fields, in the design fields, and in the art fields. Mm-hmm. And that's really um, an unusual audience for something like this, right? Yeah. Um, and most of these people, you know, they're all understanding it from a very different angle. For the most part, they're really interested in the ideas behind it. They they know that I'm not bludgeoning them over the head with, you know, a desire to save the planet or, <laughs> the, you know, insisting that they put native plants in their backyards or something. It's it's actually been a remarkable project in the sense that it, it ignited people almost across the board. So one of the main reasons we actually kind of touched base was there was an article that was put out uh, that essentially said, you know, in worrying about pollinators, we need to stop belly aching over the honeybee and start worrying more about the native pollinators, the ones that are functioning out in the ecosystem without us having to, uh, you know, provide them with housing and, and ship them commercially all over the globe. And that's something I'm, I'm very passionate about here at In Defense of Plants because really, I mean... It, 
honeybees are an invasive species. They're not native to this continent. They're introduced here for an industrial system that's, in, in many ways, is broken. And, uh, you know, they, they gobble up so much of the attention and the money, uh, and I don't feel like they necessarily deserve it. So in you approaching this project as a pollinator pathway, or at least that being a big part of it, you know, what kind of, uh, you know, how has the honeybee played um, into all this? Because yeah. I can't imagine it's an easy <laughs> subject the, um, to broach with the general Let me public. backtrack here and just explain. That the honeybee was, was part yeah. of the <laughs> movement in, in human history called the Columbian Exchange. You know this, I'm sure your audience knows this, but it's a period in human history where people moved um, species around at a sort of then unprecedented rate. And the honeybee was part of that history. And in North America, which is where I tend to focus, you know, my current energies, um, the, the honeybee was brought by Europeans to North America. And they, you know, essentially went feral into the American landscape. And they were called the white man's fly by Native <laughs> Americans. And they eventually kind of embedded themselves into the landscape. And so a lot of people think of them as natural. And how we used them initially was for honey and wax. And, you know, this is part of this landscape transformation where we're, again, moving from you know, a native uh, society that was uh, both hunter-gatherer and farmer to uh, farms and ranches and uh, fences and, you know, sort of ownership of landscape, et cetera, uh, of European sort of uh, framing, right? Yeah. And these were single-family owned and lar relatively large amounts of land, right? And the honeybee was used in these landscapes for honey and wax. And what happened next is, a, you know, we, of course, built towns and then villages and, and, and cities and then on up to megacities and a, you know, pretty globalized society. And in that transformation of landscape, what I get really interested in is sort of how the dynamics of the landscape changed, how the kind of logic of landscape changes mm -hmm. according to or as it relates to humans. Right. And the next shift was from, you know, using them for honey and wax to using them for what's called pollination services. And the reason for that is a shift into mega scale farming, right? Yeah. So as I described before, these are landscapes that all the biodiversity is designed out. And that's on purpose. That's to provide food for a lot of people. And these are financial landscapes. These are honed to their most sort of most essential for just producing life. So you have seed, soil, you know, pesticides, herbicides, whatever, and uh, fertilizer, water and time and now pollination services right so it's just this very small suite of things that produce life and it's in these landscapes that of course we have come to use the honeybee commercially right yeah and so you know when colony collapse started hitting people heard only that the honeybee was declining and they of course loved honeybees and so their first response was to become a beekeeper or to, um, you know, more or less, actually. You know, so it was the, the call to arms that emerged from that was that we needed to save the bees, right? Yeah. And very few people knew that they weren't a native species. And it also doesn't make any sense to add more of the <laughs> – how to put this? <laughs> to add more – you know, if anything, you would be adding more plant life. Um, right. And so that is is kind of where the activist arena went. And right. um, I built this project as a counter system to that lack of biodiversity in big scale farming. It was not meant to be a farming system. And, you know, there's there's reasons for that. You know, if you um, and there's amazing people around the world who are working on on this problem, by the way, which is just not what I'm working on. Yeah. You know, there are people who are diversifying crops who are, you know, figuring out that we need to add enough biodiversity around crops to be able to produce food without relying heavily on honeybees. And it's all really good work. And um, what this project was doing was just thinking on a bigger scale than that about what we could do outside of those systems, right? Yeah. 
um, to kind of shore up the biodiversity around the planet. And, you know, that has to do with recognizing that we're on a um, trajectory that is simplifying the planet, right? Mm-hmm. We're both um, eliminating um, biodiversity in hotspots, but we're also kind of shifting the dynamics of um, ecology. And the idea then of this project was that if we support and connect native species, um, then we're we're helping shore up the biodiversity of the planet. And so that would be focusing on, you know, the bats, the bees, the beetles, the ants, butterflies, et cetera, um, that, and by bees, of course, I mean the native bees, right. um, yeah. that essentially, you know, hold up the works. They hold up the, the green stuff on the planet. And so the connectivity um, idea is, of course, you know, not a new one. And, and the there are plenty of things to be concerned about and to think about even in that, right? You know, that you're not making what we call the, the cane toad highway problem <laughs> where you're just like making a nice thoroughfare for all the invasive species, right? Yeah. These have to be done thoughtfully. And, you know, that's the difference is this project's focused on these native species and it was focused on sort of how can we logically get there um, uh, working across these systems. Wow. Yeah, I love it. And you really kind of help spell it out in a way, again, that I think is needed. It's these these conversations that are happening. We've been hearing the same ones since the you know the first Earth Day. The, the the same conversations are being had, and it obviously hasn't gotten us very far. Uh, and so, yeah. kind of reframing these ideas in much the way you just did with the honeybee, I think is super important. And then to have kind of a proof of concept of that. And what I love is the fact that yeah, you know, a honeybee disappears. Our native plants aren't going to really feel that. They're, they're not going to be like, oh, man, that was great. It, it's it's just not the thing. What would happen, though, is if we lose our native solitary bees or our bumblebees, that's when stuff would go off off the wall. And uh, yeah. what, I, what I like about these is you're doing this in landscapes that, like you said, almost have next to nothing. And, and, and in any experience that I've had, at least in working little garden plots or being in a suburban or urban setting and planting native plants is that it's, it kind of feels like a, if you build it, they will come sort of situation. I'm consistently blown away by the diversity of native pollinators in, when I plant a little garden in my front yard, you know, I rent, I have a little plot and, and just what came to that. And then you multiply that in any sort of way, and you can you can start to see like, oh wow, this would make a difference. And it's not again, yeah. it's not bringing in a beehive and going like, problem solved. <laughs> and again, not to say that Where that's not that? okay. Uh, you know, that's fine and dandy. But you know, the, like you said, there's other people working on that, and it doesn't need to be the dominant conversation every time you bring up pollination. Yeah, it's it's amazing how if if you build it, they come. It's it's actually r- remarkable. We've been monitoring the first pollinator pathway for we monitored it for six years. Um, every week, you know, every week we went out and, and monitored eight transects on it, and that was through the really wonderful help of an entomologist at the Woodland Park Zoo. Her name's Erin Sullivan. And the numbers don't lie. You know, we started with grass and it was close to zero pollinators. And so, of course, now we're at thousands. And, nice. and that's pretty phenomenal. And the the takeaway here, um, though, in terms of realistic finances and in sort of realistic resources overall, both human and financial, is that we probably only have the resources to make a certain amount of these. Yeah. Um, and it would be far better a use of our time to try to build three or four of these than it would be to build, you know, hundreds and hundreds of them that that aren't going to be able to be cared for for the long term. Yeah. And the goal here would be that we're designing for hundreds of years and, you know, preferably thousands, but okay, I get it. We can't, it's hard to think that long. Yeah. But 
um, the hope would be that we can pool our energies and begin making a good design plan that really can help uh, sort of solidify and name and continue to articulate the need for a particular uh, project so that we don't sort of dilute what we're doing effort-wise. Yeah. And there's it, it's remarkable to do you know anything at all in one's backyard. But my hope also is that we can start to to really begin collectively pooling our resources and and building a set number of these. Right. I think it's a sentiment that it needs to be said. I mean, it is great to get individual involvement, and that's where it all begins. Start it in your backyard. Yeah. See the difference for yourself. But yeah. until even at the local, the most local community level, until you kind of start rallying the community together. And saying we need this, yeah, you know what? It, it's not enough to just do it in your backyard. You got to get your community involved, and that's where it starts. Yeah. you know, and it can be a small municipality or an entire city, but that's where it needs to start to happen. And I like the sustainability aspect of this. So, you know, when you say you have to make these last for hundreds to thousands of years, I mean, as a designer, that's that's an incredibly intimidating <laughs> mindset. Come on, it's fun. No, it's awesome um. though, I, and that's great. <laughs> I love to hear that because so much of what you hear is like, yeah, it'll be done in thirty years, and we'll just build a new one. So what is it? How? 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 <laughs> how? Yeah. Well, I mean, really, we need involvement at all levels. And here's the weird thing about this project. It's had no shortage of interest. And people are, are you know, extremely interested in doing things like this. The institutions are the lagging ones. It's the funders, it's the government agencies, etc., that are just a few steps behind the public. Mm. And that means that it's positive. You know, we're in forward momentum, and that's really exciting. So, you know, it really just takes involvement at multiple levels, you know, neighborhood level, you know, city level. Uh, Funders also need to, you know, recognize the need for long-term care, which is part of why it makes so much sense to try to design a handful of these well, right? Yeah. Um, You really start to consolidate the resources. So I would encourage people who are interested in something like this to try to find a project that's nearby to try to latch on to and support because it's a really effective way of yeah. helping. I think there's a, a knee-jerk response to being a drop in the ocean. We feel so powerless, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah. And I think we have to we have to sort of muster our courage against that. <laughs> right. We have to recognize that being a drop in the ocean is awesome. <laughs> and that if we're heading towards a design plan we believe in, then that's well worth doing. Yeah, right. Totally. So I just want to brief talk about one other thing that's actually the most important thing, which is that what's happening in those big scale ecosystems, you know, what's happening in native ecologies, and you probably know far more about this than I do, but I want to point it out because it's it's alarming to me. And that would be what's what's sort of the decoupling between plants, pollinators, and birds, which are, of course, both pollinators and they're eating them. So, um, you know, for example, a bird is flying over. Um, as it has for you know generations, and it's arriving, and it's you know sort of plant that it's used to is sprouting earlier or later, mm-hmm. or the pollinator that it's tending to eat is is hatching earlier or later, and the timing is going a little funny, right? Yeah. And I want to bring this up because it's something that I um, am really interested in, and I don't think we know enough yet about what's happening here. Um, but when you're looking at a fragmented landscape, you know, stuff is starting to move, even plants, right? Yeah. And they're not necessarily moving predictably. So they're not, you know, when I first started reading about this, I was like, well, you know, great, they're all moving north, you know? <laughs> it's going to happen. Um, <laughs> we're fine, you know? Yeah. 
uh, that was what I, I sort of imagined. But what's happening is actually a little weirder than that. Like stuff's moving north and south and east. You know, it's a, it's all going in all directions. It's and ecology, it's sort of, baby. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah. There you go. No hard and fast. That to me is more concerning than what's happening in big scale farming. You yeah. know, there we we have a system that, you know, is sort of replenishing itself, so to speak, and is a managed landscape. And it's in... It's in these bigger systems. I mean, this idea, you know, it's it's we talk about it in ecology is called mutualism decoupling, and and yes. and you've you've said it perfectly. <laughs> it's my favorite. It's, yeah, there's no there's no simple relationship in nature, and nothing is operating in a vacuum. And what's happening with climate change, yeah. especially man-made climate change, which is occurring at least ten times faster than it has in the past, is the fact that most things can't keep up with it. And yeah. that's what's scary is when you look at the plants, what little research has been on, uh, done on this is the fact that most plants aren't going to be able to track what we understand as favorable environments fast enough. And yes. this is, I think, a big part of where design comes in. Now, Hugely. Yeah, you're, 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 again, you're bridging this very uh, iffy ground between value systems and science, but I don't think this is a case in which we can have our cake and eat it, too. We need to tackle this idea, and I think part of it comes from this idea of pathways, design projects, better landscaping. So, I mean, is that, is that kind of what you're getting at with all of this? Yes, totally. And it also is what I mean when I talk about design. It's the idea that all species within a system are designing it and it's their specificity that makes the shape and the behavior of that ecosystem. The more of them um, and the more we enable their design, the better. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, enabling. Another thing that's kind of come out of this whole biodiversity crisis is even though we can't really put a true human value system on it, when you look at biodiversity, relatively, you know, a desert is less biodiverse than a than a, a rainforest, but it's not any ecologically less functionable. You know, that's what I'm talking about here is biodiversity matters. So the species within that system, the natural occurring cohesive group of species that have evolved together, they matter. Yeah. And when you start losing yeah. those, that's when things start to unravel. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and this, you know, um, to my mind, is where we should be putting all of our attention. In doing so, we are supporting any systems that we build. And that's just a matter of fact, right? Yeah. You know, you've been working on this for a decade now, if not more. Yeah. And this is something that's probably been batting around in your head, literally sun up to sundown. You've put a lot of effort and passion into this. You know, how, how has this project changed over 10 years? I mean, what what's happened? <laughs> um, well... Uh, when I first started this project, you know, nobody knew what I was talking about, and that was fine. The I moved to my hometown to begin working on the first project uh, from New York City to Seattle, and it was a really good place to get away with building something that <laughs> needed time to, or you know, sort of um, percolate. And so, for the first couple of years, you know, I went door to door on all these organizations and funders to try to convince them that this project was worth doing. And for the most part, they just stared at me like I was nuts. You know, actually somebody <laughs> asked if I had a lot of time on my hands, you know, like I was a kind Ouch. of crazy cat lady or something. Um, <laughs> and um, that shifted relatively quickly, That's like good. almost overnight. The project got a lot of attention. Uh, I would say it got a lot of attention, but the funding community did not catch up. So what I was dealing with in the funding community was trying to convince people first of the problem and of the solution. Mm -hmm. And that was the weirdest problem to have where you're sort of dealing with this somewhat indifferent, you know, they're indifferent by, you know, not because they're indifferent people, but because they need to be convinced that this is interesting and important. Yeah. And you're both trying to explain how it works <laughs> and why it matters. And 
I remember being, you know, in the running for a pretty phenomenal design grant in 2010 or so, where they said, we, we literally don't know why you're doing what you're doing. Why don't you just put honeybees in the backyards of America, oh, like wow. across the board, you know? And so it took so much energy for me to explain why this was relevant. And it, in many ways, had to do with catch, like waiting for, for people to catch up. You know, when I started, even the colony collapse stuff was barely in the news. You know, it was reaching global news, but it wasn't the kind of, you know, massive yeah. <laughs> reach yeah. that it is now. And basically what happened is that the project got a massive amount of attention really quickly. And it did not at all have the financial support to be able to accommodate that attention. And the downside of that interest was that it was for the opposite reason that I built it for. Damn it. <laughs> it's a pretty major downside. So everybody and their grandmother <laughs> wanted to hear about my wonderful work saving the honeybees. Uh. And so you've heard about my project. I mean, you've heard me try to describe it. It's, it's, it's systems thinking. It's design thinking. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's not one where you can just go in and talk about saving this one species um, to a five-minute interview or something. And so I was sort of stuck with the press where, you know, they were coming to me with a very particular paradigm in mind. And the only thing I could do was try to change that paradigm in the conversation, which usually led to, a, you know, complete lack of success, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, most often it takes, it takes a good chunk of time to explain what this is about. And I just actually had a, an architecture student reach out to me, and I, I still get a lot of these emails, you know, you know, can you help me save the honeybees? And I, it took us, a, you know, she's giving a talk in, in Canada this week um, and wanted to cover my work saving the honeybees. And so, it, you know, it's, in, it's sort of incumbent on me to explain, because if I don't, then I'm, I'm helping people sort of spread misinformation. Um, so there's been a lot of that. And what happened, and, and by the way, she is giving a beautiful talk now. And Wonderful. the talk is actually about her, wow. how her understanding changed through the course of a conversation. Oh, that's right? excellent. Good crystallization yeah, it's moment. it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I guess that's a, a form of success, you know. Um, so what, uh, what happened is that how people responded was really unique. They did not want to support my work. They wanted to make one, and they wanted to save the honeybees with making it. And so I ended up in this really challenging position for many, many years, dealing with you know far too many people, <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of people, if not thousands of people, who sort of ran off with the pollinator pathway name, using it for its opposite reason, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it put me in this really strange teaching position where if I didn't help them, then, the, you know, work that I didn't believe in um, would be heading out into the world. Yeah. And it was a really strange position to be in. It's it's the weirdest position to be in because you're you're helping people understand what the project is about after they've already sort of run off with it, right? <laughs> and I should say, you know, ideas should be free. You know, this isn't about ownership of ideas. This right. is just about getting the ideas right. Right. But in these positions, you know, people were so sure that what they were doing was, you know, what needed to be done. And here I was interrupting them. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so they didn't take particularly kindly to the founder of this thing to shifting their mind. And you know, I remember one woman called me a representative of Monsanto in the course of our exchange, Jeez. and it, it, you know, of course, I burst into laughter, but it was actually painful because you know I was putting so much effort into building this project and trying to do it right. And you know, projects like these need scientists; they need you know good urban planners behind them; they need strong designers. And right. to do this well, we we just need to be collaborating better and, and organizing better. And 
I I just found myself in this this sort of painful position of trying to help people who really meant well and who just didn't know enough about what the project was trying to do. And so that led to a complete website change where <laughs> we, Ooh. you know, what had been, you know, initially like a, um, you know, fairly simple site, you know, we sort of had to switch gears and try to be, you know, really explain what was behind this. Yeah. And, you know, that's an ever evolving endeavor. The second thing that happened was that the nonprofit community had a strange response to it. And they, I, I'll be blunt that, that they reacted like I was competition and huh. this project is built for them. It's, it's for it's for the communities that do this work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I can give a couple of examples without naming names. One is a a pretty you know big environmental nonprofit, and they announced that they were making a pollinator pathway program. And I reached out and said, you know, hey, I'm the founder of this project, and like we should be in touch because it's um, it's a pretty specific project. And they said, <laughs> they actually literally told me that they took it because I was getting press, and they felt like they should be getting press. <laughs> and this was just the weirdest, you know, it was really nice to hear because I was getting this kind of reaction from the nonprofit yeah. arena and it wasn't making any sense to me and it suddenly made more sense. But the the downside is that they were, they wanted to do, you know, I, I asked them about the, the work that they were doing and I said, you know, are you connecting landscape? Are you like following the, the basic guidelines of what this tra- project is trying to do? And they said, no, we're just doing this for social capital. Wow. And I said, what does that mean? And they said, well, people really like to feel good and they want to plant flowers. And I'll interject here to say that I think that we need less of that. (laughs) I think we need a world in which we um, can depend on our nonprofits to help us solve big problems. Um, The nonprofit arena has been put into an unfortunate position of jockeying for the same funding. And so I think they do tend to be a little competitive with each other even though you don't talk about it, right? And I also think that they're in a very unusual position because they're fighting for something that is hard to fight for. And they have to find ways to engage the community. And it's hard. And here comes this, you know, in their view, (laughs) pipsqueak project that's getting all this attention, you know? Yeah. And so I can understand where they might have been coming from. And the downside is just that it was really hard to bridge between the the way that I was thinking about this project in the arena of design mm-hmm. and the kind of help people save the whatever pollinators approach that the nonprofits were utilizing in yeah. this. And that kind of gets to the heart of the matter is that this project was about trying to change that paradigm. That the idea of saving species is is as much a reflection of this lineage of Western thinking as anything else. Right. It's, you know, the idea that we're a dominant ecosystem and that we have to save small sections of it is, I think, really harming us. And instead, seeing ourselves as an ecosystem and beginning to design better relationships is, I think, where our focus should be. Yeah. So with that particular nonprofit, I actually just got kind of exhausted. Um, <laughs> I'm going to reach out to them eventually and give them tools. Right. <laughs> but, you know, the point being here is that I really um, and I'm in support of all this good work. And it was just a really big challenge for me as an individual to have built this project that got people excited, but then 
to find that that excitement wasn't actually supporting, you know, good collaboration and and sort of long-term thinking was really hard. Yeah. The second aspect was a nonprofit that announced a, you know, I will say, you know, this project has sort of spawned a whole group of similar sounding projects. So it's, you know, there's pollinator highways and bee freeways and, mm. you know, et cetera. And the, the group that I'm referencing here announced a, you know, pollinator highway or a corridor. And what they did is they partnered with a, you know, a transportation department and they basically, what they're announcing and what they're calling, you know, basically a pollinator pathway is a highway that is, that is lined with plants. And that first off is not a new idea that, you know, the Lady Bird Johnson Act um, has been alive and well um, since yeah, the 60s. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> and it's using this project and it's, it's actually undermining its goals. It's not about landscape connectivity. What it's really doing is decorating sprawl. Mm-hmm. And that kind of gets to another way in which design is a really useful frame for thinking about these, these big system problems. And that has to do with kind of the idea of the client. You have to think about who the client is. Um, yeah. In this case, the client is a road. <laughs> um, in the case of farming, you know, the client is food. And, you know, in the farming system, you can only achieve X amount of biodiversity in a farm system, right? You can add a number of plants to be able to provide a quote-unquote ecosystem service to food and farming so that you have enough pollination yeah. for food, right? The That particular system can only be so biodiverse as the food itself, you know, or as the as the system itself, right, right? Right. Every single time you're making a unit of landscape that has food at its center and enough biodiversity to produce the food. And that's not the same as conservation or not the same as supporting a planet of biodiversity. And it's similar with this idea of adding plants to roads. You know, aside from the sort of strange logic of adding <laughs> plants to roads that, you know, just that you're basically just like a thoroughfare for cars to smack into, right? Right. It's really about recognizing that you're most essentially designing a sprawl system. You know, you're just decorating sprawl. And the goal here is to connect landscape and that that all of these different agencies, including that Department of Transportation, can fit into that goal. But individually, they probably, you know, individually it won't get there, basically. Yeah. There's so many good ideas that I wanted to kind of touch on there. And, and, and one of the big overarching themes there, I think, is this idea of kind of going after these forgotten landscapes. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier about this pristine myth and that we've kind of taken suburban areas and lawns and all these areas that are the human environment as we see it and said, well, this is ours and we've, we've, this is what, you know, that's what national parks are for. But when you forget about these, these forgotten landscapes, so to speak, you you realize that, oh, crap, that's where a majority of the land is. And that's where we really start (laughs) needing this, like the connectivity. And that's where it starts to play in. But again, when it comes down to just kind of decorating, there's only so many ways you can polish a turd, right? Uh, So it's it's a different way of approaching the whole system. But, uh, you know, and and again, I'm glad you mentioned the non for profit strife, because it's, it, it plays out more common than I think people realize is that the the system that we've designed for uh, nonprofits to operate in is just all about getting that little pool of funding. And I've had yeah. a very similar experience working for a non-for-profit that I, I held to a high regard and then realized was just less than stellar is it's just gaining that social capital in order to get the grants again. It's all of the circular system that feeds yeah. back in and the end result is just half-assed. And that's really yeah. sad. Not to say that there aren't stellar non-for-profits out there, but the system we've designed for them creates the systems like you just described there. And it's, again, this idea of we can't always have our cake and eat it too. We need to start rethinking the approach. And again, it needs to be on a community level. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's huge. Alan Rabinovitz, uh, the the big cat conservationist, beating you know tigers and lions. He he gave an interview about this years ago, and I can't find it. But from what I and I've looked for it, um, <laughs> what I remember of it is that he said there's all these nonprofits that are working to save tigers, and you know they each have their gala and they have their supporters, and they are highly successful and. He said, at the same time, we've gone from 100,000 tigers in the 70s to something like, at the time when he was speaking, about 2,500 tigers. Right, yeah. And that was, it was such an eye-opening, you know, moment for me, um, where you realize that we've set up a system that needs to keep funding itself. And I would prefer to fund myself, you know, or get myself out of business in this project, Um, you know, and I think we should be thinking like that, you know, move on to the next thing once you've solved a design problem. And it, I agree. There's so many phenomenal nonprofits who are working on these big um, problems and it's really not to knock them, but the system that they exist in is really problematic. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, again, it's, it's this, this idea, and I'm glad you brought up like tigers, this charismatic megafauna thing. You see that all the time again is now we have a glut of pandas in <laughs> captivity and literally no habitat to put them in and it, it, yeah. it all spirals back down to plants and that's really again what in defense of plants is all about is like what's the leading cause of extinction and endangered species on this planet habitat destruction what is that habitat it's the plants yeah. we're planting so if you can have a street down the middle of a, a city that's sidewalk and grass or sidewalk and a diverse array of native plants, which one of those is better? You know, suddenly there's habitat where we kind of destroyed all of it. Yeah, and even better that we really think about this stuff on an enormous scale and and try to design the best possible outcome across the board, right? And I know there are so many people working on this, and um, I think we're in in many ways on the cusp of getting a lot done. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you sort of watch social movements as they begin to build and they eventually tip over and it's always so exciting to be able to watch that in action yeah um hopefully we get to have that privilege in our lifetimes yeah 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 and 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 again i think it's interesting to see you know just how you've outlined the trajectory in the last 10 years is you've had a lot of ups a lot of uh you know moments where you feel very justified that your idea was a good idea but it's also come with a lot of downs but you know in moving forward it's, it, you know, especially in keeping with this optimistic movement and hoping to see this boiling over, you know, where do you see this project going? What do you want to do? What's the next steps? That's a really good question. Um, <laughs> well, I got pretty profoundly exhausted by this entire process. Um, I thought that I would be able to set out to build this singular, beautiful design project in the heart of my city and make a book and um, then set out some tools. And it's been harder than I anticipated. And that's okay. You know, good ideas are still good ideas, no matter what form they're taking. And um, I also got into a car accident. And so Ooh. the <laughs> that was uh, five years ago. But I, like, I'm fine. I actually had a total, like, a near total recovery. I did something like two years of physical therapy. And, but to actually answer your question is super weird because I'm like, well, I'm really tired now, yeah, um, yeah. you know, but the, the, the gist of this is that where I'm turning my attention is to helping to try to make some tools for people. And this is actually a call for the scientists on this podcast is that if you're someone who works in this arena and you want to help, what I've built is a basic framework for thinking about this stuff. And 
I have beautifully designed tools, but what I don't have is all of your deep knowledge. <laughs> and if you are someone who wants to help make this thing um, even more beautiful and more functional, I'd really welcome you to reach out to this project. I love it. That's awesome. You heard it here. That's that's beautiful, yep. and it's really encouraging because all too often ideals win out over science time and time again, and that's dangerous, and we've seen that. You've definitely outlined that here, is that idealism can be a dangerous tool without the right kind of knowledge. So the call for more science and, and more information, uh, it, that's wonderful, and that's exactly what the tool set needs to require is this, this literacy, and uh, you know I think what you and your team can bring to the table then is, again, putting the science in context, putting it in a way that's digestible and understandable and, and doable. Because so many yeah. times it's, you know, scientists are naturally hesitant people. They're not going to make claims that they can't be sure about. And, uh, you know, that, that confuses the public too often. And you're, you're, you're dealing in a wonderful interface right now. And uh, I, I hope it, I really, really hope the call for action really kind of comes to fruition for you. Thanks. I hope so too. Because, you know, I have a love affair with with science. It's um, you know, it's an incredible process. It's it's um, it's such a vital arena. And yes, I think many scientists have trouble being able to communicate their work. And it's a large part of why I built this project at all was to help celebrate and support the work of scientists around the world. Yeah, I think uh, who was it? Edward Abbey said, you know, the idea of nature doesn't need defense; it needs more defenders. So I think, yeah, science itself doesn't need a defense. It's proven itself time and time again. It just needs more defenders. Yeah. We just need to get some, you know, more work done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start putting, uh, you know, action behind what we're finding out because otherwise what do we have is just a bunch of facts that no one's doing anything with. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we did this. We this did is it. Great. We this can is keep wonderful. going. I'm just like, oh my God, we actually did it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, in terms of finding out more about this project or being, you know, any scientist listening to this that says, hey, I think I can have a contribution here. What do you recommend? How should people find out more about you, reach out to you? What, how, do you how do you work best with people? Anybody can go to the Pollinator Pathway website, which is, you know, pollinatorpathway.com. And anyone can reach out to me via email on that site. Mm -hmm. And more or less any email, well, actually any email on there will, will find its way to me. Cool. So you're welcome to just go there and uh, send me a note. And, uh, yeah, that's the best way to reach me. Excellent. I'll put up links to all of that uh, on, on the link for this episode so people can find awesome. that real easily. Uh, Sarah, yeah. this has been enlightening. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. I think you've said a lot of things in a much more eloquent way than most of us are thinking. It's there. Uh, again, I don't know anyone that will disagree with anything you've said today. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, putting proof to concept. So keep Keep working, and I really hope a lot of collaborative uh, wonderfulness happens because of this episode. Thank you, and it's been a total pleasure to talk with you. Wonderful. Well, you have yourself a great day. Thank you. You too. Cheers. I really enjoyed talking with her. Great perspectives, deep thinker, and I think we can all agree that the pollinator pathway, in one form or another, is something we should all embrace, especially in urban environments. You know, I hear a lot of people talking about how as the populations become increasingly urbanized that people are going to be less and less connected with nature. And certainly that's true to some extent, but there is always great botanizing to do in urban areas. In fact, some of the most unique. You can see plants from all over the world, but of course, I'm more concerned about native plants and the Pollinator Pathway Project is something uh, that I think we should all rally behind. I thank Sarah for taking the time out of what is a very busy schedule to talk with us, and I highly encourage you to check out the links I've posted with this episode. Go check out our website and uh, give her a shout-out. Let her know what you're thinking. 
All right, everyone, I've got great stuff coming up in the next couple of weeks, including the question show. I know I keep flirting with that idea. I just have to have the time to sit down and fully research your questions, which were great. I really appreciate everyone that submitted them. Uh, so look forward to that, plus many others. All right, that's enough out of me for this week. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.